One of the stories that my family often told as uh, we were growing up was the story of when we lost my little brother on the beach. He was about four or five, and we were in North Carolina on a family vacation, and if you can picture one of those beach scenes where every single inch of real estate of the beach is covered by blankets, umbrellas, and people in sunscreen. And uh, we, you know, it was me, I was three years older than him and my mom and dad, and uh, I probably went down, to the, went down to the water to do something, and I think my mom went to go throw something away or turned a minute to put some sunscreen on, came back to the, uh, to the towel where we had set up camp, and my brother's gone. So imagine... You're there, and there's hundreds of people everywhere as far as you can see, and the one who's supposed to be there when you got back is gone. And you can imagine the thoughts, if you're a parent, you imagine the thought, the immediate thoughts you have. It's not like, oh, I'm sure he's just right around the corner. It's, I wonder if he's wandered back onto the road behind the beach, or I wonder if he's wandered into the surf and been swept away by the riptide. What if he's been abducted? What if he's lost? What am I going to do? What am I, how am I going to replace him? And all of these very panicky thoughts begin to run through your mind. And so my mom went one direction and my dad went another direction, calling his name, shouting for him. And it wasn't maybe 15 minutes that probably seemed like 15 hours later that a woman came walking up the beach with him on her hip. He had wandered down chasing a kite or something like that. But panic, it was the only word that could describe that moment. Well, the initial reaction of Jesus' disciples when they find the empty tomb is similar. It's not praise and worship. It's not adoration. It is panic, confusion, and weeping. They came back to the tomb to look for and find the body of Jesus, and it's gone. And all of this, despite the fact that they had been taught over the course of three years from Jesus about the fact that he would be killed and he would rise again. And so these were people who heard it from his own mouth, and yet they were still shocked to find the empty tomb. And if you think about it, God could have revealed the truth of the resurrection in any number of different ways that would have been far less traumatic for his disciples. Think about it. They could have had Jesus just sort of leaning up against the stone as the disciples came to find it and and just saying, hey guys, here I am. Like, here's like, just how I told you. And he could have taught them just like he taught them on any number of occasions, but he didn't choose to do that. He chose to allow his disciples to come find this empty grave and to wrestle through the confusion and the pain and the shock of seeing an empty tomb. Well, why did he do that? It's one of the questions I want us to ask today, because the empty tomb and the resurrection that it announces still disrupts us today. We don't experience it like Mary and Peter and John did on the first day of the, re- of the resurrection, but the, the truth of the matter is that, that it still disrupts our lives today. The resurrection reminds us that our lives don't belong to us, that they belong to Jesus as a living king who has the power to to send us where he will and to control our lives. It reminds us of death, reminds us of death, because if we need resurrection, then it means that we all must face death at some point. And so the big question I want us to ask this morning is, how should we respond as Jesus' disciples to the empty tomb. How should we respond to this truth of the empty tomb and the resurrection? This 
passage unfolds in a series of three scenes that I want us to see this morning. Three scenes that focus on different characters and their interactions that will teach us three ways that we ought to respond to the empty tomb. Scene one, verses one through ten. And the headline for this scene I want you to see is that we must trust even if we don't understand. We must trust even if we don't understand. Mary Magdalene uh, arrives to the tomb early in the morning. It's likely cold, and uh, John tells us that it's still dark, and she sees the, t- the stone rolled away from the tomb. And she immediately, when she sees it rolled away, she runs back in the other direction and heads back towards uh, Peter's house. And she finds Peter, and it says the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Most uh, believe that that is actually John, the author of this gospel that he's referring to there. And she tells him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Now notice that Mary already has a theory in her mind of what's happened. She believes that his body's been stolen. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where he is. And so that's the story she would have told Peter and John. Somebody's stolen Jesus' body. And so they, uh, Peter and John, run to check things out for themselves. And John relates this humorous detail that he ran faster than Peter and beat him there. Peter may not have had his coffee yet in the morning, and uh, he was moving a little bit more slowly. It's likely why John maybe didn't include his name in here, because it would have been a little bit immodest to say, yeah, it was me, I'm faster than Peter. But when they get there, what do they see? John draws our attention to, to a, a little detail that none of the other gospel writers do, and he, he draws our attention to the linen cloths. He no, noticed that he says, Peter saw, uh, John sees the linen cloths, and then Peter goes in and he sees the linen cloths folded up, and then he sees this face cloth that it said was on Jesus' head folded up and put in a different place. And that evidence convinces John that Jesus' body was not stolen like Mary had told them, but something else has happened. Why? Well, if someone had stolen the body of Jesus, John knows this isn't how a body snatcher would leave the tomb. If someone's coming to snatch the body of Jesus, they would pick him up and carry him out. They wouldn't take the time to unwrap him, fold the clothes, put them down, take the the cover off his face and fold it up and put it in another place. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson this week. Uh, He said, you know, if you've ever had your house broken into or your car broken into, the thieves don't uh, make your bed before they leave. They don't run through the kitchen and put the dishes in the dishwasher, do they, before they, as they're running out the door with your TV? No, John says, this is not the scene of a body theft. This appears like someone woke up, took off their clothes, made their bed, put it back neatly, and walked out. And John says that he saw and believed. The evidence, we should should believe even if we don't understand because the evidence demands it. John wants us to see that the evidence demands it. But there's another reason why we should trust even if we don't understand. And that is because that's the way faith works. Notice this little detail that John adds right after that in verse 9. He says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. John admits that even though he believed, even though he saw the evidence and believed, there were certain things about this that he did not understand. 
And, he, and one of those aspects was, had to do with the scriptures. And these are scriptures that John and Peter would have known for their entire lives. Things, scriptures that they would have memorized. But John humbly admits, I didn't understand how this fit together with what my eyes were experiencing and seeing. They would only come to understand these truths later in life as they grew in faith, but they needed faith. They needed trust at the beginning if they were ever going to understand how it all fit together in the end. This truth was driven home to me early in my Christian life. Uh, A friend's Bible study leader opened the Bible with me and was talking to me about some inconsistencies in my life between what I was professing, I believed, and what I was actually doing in my life. And it was as if the scriptures just jumped off the page and it was like, that's clear, that's true. I need to change. I need to repent. Those are, I need to make some changes in my life. And I, I trusted it. I believed it. But I didn't understand how all of that fit together with everything else in the scriptures. I didn't understand how it fit together with what Jesus had done necessarily. But I knew that I needed to react to the scriptures that were coming off the page at me, even though I didn't understand how it was all going to fit together in the end. In fact, there are many ways in which I still don't understand how it all fits together. You and I are all experiencing faith in the same way as we trust God and we walk forward in our life, even though we don't know everything and how it's going to work together. But we have, as the 11th century theologian Anselm put it, we have faith that seeks understanding. Faith that seeks understanding. Friends, when we're confronted with the empty tomb, or for that matter, any other unsettling truth about the Christian life, we may be tempted to want to understand everything before we walk forward, to know all the details of how it's going to work out before we take a step. But this ought, this ought to encourage us that we can believe, in fact, we must believe, if we are ever going to understand anything on the other side of that. It'd be an encouragement to trust, even if you don't understand. But if you've walked that path for any length of time, trusting and walking without understanding all the details, you know that that can be an emotionally difficult place to live. It's an emotionally complex way to live your life, which leads us to the second response in the second scene that I want us to see. In verses 11 through 15, that uh, Peter and John move off the scene and the camera remains at the tomb with Mary Magdalene. And Mary shows us this second response, and that is that we must probe our emotions. We need to probe our emotions. Why should we probe our emotions? Well, the first reason is because they reveal what we're thinking. Our emotions reveal what we're thinking. Where do we see that? Well, Mary is left at the tomb, and she is weeping. And while she's weeping, she goes back to the tomb to look into it after Peter and John uh, head off back to their homes. And you can understand why Mary would do this, right? If you've ever lost anything, you, you look in the same place again and again and again and say, maybe I didn't look right the first time. Maybe there's something, maybe my keys are actually in this drawer and I just overlooked them. Mary's going back to the tomb and saying, did I really see things? Is his body really not there? And she's weeping as she does it. And she's, she sees these two angels uh, sitting in the tomb. She doesn't seem particularly troubled by the fact that she sees angels, by the way. But they ask her a question. They say, why are you weeping? Of course, they know why she's weeping. That's why they're there. But they ask her anyway, why are you weeping? 
And her answer is that she still believes what she initially said. They've taken my Lord and I don't know where he is. The Jesus she knew. The Jesus she loved. The Jesus she had walked with. The Jesus who had brought her brother back to life from the dead just weeks before this. Was gone and missing. The resurrection and the empty tomb dismantled the version of Jesus that she had in her mind and she was weeping because she had lost that Jesus. It revealed the way she thought about Jesus in his ministry, but it did more than just reveal her thinking. It did, it, we should probe our emotions because they reveal what we want. They reveal what we desire from life. Look at uh, uh, Mary, after she talks with the angels, she's, she turns around and she sees a man who is Jesus, we know, but she doesn't know that it's him. She doesn't recognize him. And he asks her the same question that the angels asked. Woman, why are you weeping? But then he adds another question on the end of it. Whom are you seeking? Of course, Jesus knows who she's looking for. But he wants her to say it. She, he wants her to say that I'm looking for Jesus. I want Jesus. Tell me where he is if you know and I will go get him. I'll, I'll take care of it. Just tell me where it is and, and I'll put... I'll put the pieces back together that seem to be falling apart, she says. Again, Mary's emotions reveal something deeper about her, that she longs for, for someone that, she longs for something that only the risen Christ can fulfill. And it's not the Jesus she's looking for, but it's the Jesus she needs that confronts her. And the same is true for us, friends. Our, our, our emotions uh, often tell a deeper story. They don't, often, they don't always tell a deeper story. Our emotions sometimes go up and down, and they're not the most reliable barometer of how we're doing. But if you read the scriptures carefully, you will see that God again and again asks emotional people what's behind their emotions. He says to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Jesus says to Bartimaeus, what, what do you want me to do for you? As he cries out to him. James asked the early church, why are there quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your desires that are at war within you? The resurrection of Jesus, friends, if we understand it rightly, produces an emotional response. And even though we don't experience it in the same way, it, it, the reality of it can still hit us like it hit Mary that the real risen Jesus often dismantles the previously held versions of Jesus that we would have had in our minds and our hearts. We prefer a Jesus who helps us to fulfill our life plans, that comes alongside of us to achieve our goals, which is fine if Jesus was, is still dead and we can profit from his teaching, but if he's alive, if he's risen from the dead, then he is the king. And He doesn't exist to serve our purposes, but we exist to serve the purposes of his kingdom. And when he comes to us as the king, we have to deal with him as a living person. And we have to reckon with the fact that he is alive and that he rules and reigns over us. And as he disrupts our personal kingdoms and dismantles our personal kingdoms, we may weep like Mary. We may be sad. We may be angry like Cain. But we ought to probe our emotions to say, why am I angry? Why am I weeping? Why am I sad? What am I looking for? 
What am I seeking? And if we're honest, if we answer those questions honestly, then then they will expose us. They will expose what is underneath the iceberg that is uh, jutting out of the top of the water. They'll expose all the desires and what we're looking for. And when it does that, when those questions do that, they lead us to the third response that I want you to see. And that is that we must draw near to the risen Jesus. We must draw near to the risen Jesus. That's the third response we see in verses 16 through 18. Why should we draw near to the risen Jesus? He gives us two clues in his character why we should do that in this passage. First of all, because he knows your name. He knows your name. John tells us that Mary thinks this man is the gardener who comes up to him, and so she doesn't recognize him. And it isn't, but did you notice that it isn't until he says her name that she recognizes who it is that's speaking to her? Mary, he says, and she turns around. Isaiah had prophesied to Israel, Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Lord saying, "I, I can't forget who you are. I can't forget your name because I've written it on my hands. Or Jesus, back in John 10, words that maybe Mary would have heard. He calls himself the good shepherd and he says, the sheep here his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary knew his voice because she called him, she, she, he called her by her name. We can fix our eyes on Jesus. We can draw near to Jesus. We can trust Jesus because he knows our name. You don't tend to trust people who can't remember your name. Have you ever met somebody like that? You've met them five or six times and you still have to, you can tell that they don't remember your name, but they're trying to be nice about it. You're not going to reveal to them the deep desires of your heart and the deep desires of your life and entrust your life to them. No, because if they can't remember the most basic thing about who you are, then they're not going to remember anything else about you or care. But Jesus says, I know your name. And when I call you, I call you by your name. So we can trust him because he knows our name, but we can also trust him because his work brings us near to God. Brings us near to God. After Mary recognizes Jesus, what does she do? She grabs him. She grabs him. Which is why he says, don't cling to me. (laughs) Because she was, right? Clinging to him. But he responds and says, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And then he tells her, he says, Go tell my disciples, go tell my brothers, that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Why does Jesus say that to Mary? He's reminding her of something he said earlier in the ministry, in his ministry. He says, It's better for me to go and ascend to my Father, because when I do, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will draw you to me. And so the Holy Spirit, he wants Mary to know that that even though she wants him to stay, even though she wants to cling tightly to him as he is now, his departure, paradoxically, is going to bring him closer to her. 
He needs to go if she wants to be close to him. Can you relate to Mary? She's known and walked with Jesus for three years now. She's heard his teaching. She's anointed him with her hair. She's heard his teaching about the resurrection. She's lived with him and and, uh, eaten meals with him and walked with him. And she even heard him say, I am the resurrection and the life, but she doesn't know what to think about this new and risen Jesus. And so she wants to cling to him and say, Jesus, I want you to stay with me just like you are right now. The empty tomb reminds us that a new creation is coming. And that the first creation is passing away. And Jesus is the first member of that new creation. But if you trust in him, then you are a member of that new creation as well. But here's the thing. As Jesus brings his new creation into this world, into your life, he does so often by pulling away from us the bits of the old creation that we want to grab onto and cling to tightly. And in order to make us truly rich, Jesus may have to make us materially poor. In order to give us true comfort, Jesus may have to make us uncomfortable in this world. In order to make us truly strong, Jesus may have to make you weak according to the measure of this world. But just as he assured Mary outside the empty tomb, the empty tomb that seemed to shatter the life that she had envisioned for herself, he assures us today, you don't need to cling to the old. Something new and something better is coming, and in fact, something new and something better is already here in the person of Jesus. And his resurrection and his ascension to your father and his father, his ascension to your God and his God guarantees that that new creation will supplant the old and that it will come to pass. And so, friends, if you are clinging to the old, clinging to that old creation, let it go. Let it go and draw near to the risen Jesus the first fruits of the new creation, and allow him to bring you near to God, to call you by your name, and to bring you close to your Father. Let's pray together. Father, we marvel, wonder at the empty tomb, the tomb that shocked the first disciples, the tomb that sent them into panic, And Lord, we confess that often your disruptions into our lives can lead us to react the same way, to panic. To panic at the way in which you disrupt all of the things that we want to keep safe and comfortable and in order. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you. Trust you even if we don't understand how it all fits together. That in those moments when we weep, when we're angry, when... We're sad that we would ask ourselves, allow you to probe us, to say, why are you weeping? And ultimately, that the answer to that question would propel us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to draw near to Jesus, and to find in him all of the hope that we need.
all of the sustenance we need to live and to flourish in your new creation that you have brought into this world and continue to make part of our lives. Oh Lord, bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.